When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So whether you're here and uh, you, you grew up going to church or you're new to church, uh, you're investigating the faith, what it could mean, um, there's, uh, there's, a pa- there's, there's a passage in the Old Testament, a story from the Old Testament that I would wager that you would know, that you're familiar with, and it's the story of David and Goliath. It's just a, a cultural, a story that's just become part of our culture. We know, we know, a lot of us know how the story goes. For those few of you who, who may not know what is in that story, it's just a story of uh, the, the armies of Israel are encamped and they're facing uh, the armies of the Philistines, who are the, the big bad guys in, this, in that section of the Bible. And uh, the, the, the Philistines send forth this champion uh, who's, who's called Goliath. And Goliath is, is a few feet taller than everyone else. He's wearing, uh, he's wearing like armor made of bronze and greaves made of bronze. And he has a spear and javelin. And he, he taunts and curses at the armies of Israel and defies them. And defies their God, defies the living God. And from there the story, the, there the, the story we have in Scripture goes. Uh, that a young shepherd boy uh, who had been anointed, who was going to become the king of Israel, named David... Uh, he, he rejects the, the king of Israel's armor. He doesn't put on bronze armor himself. He steps forward uh, with nothing but uh, a sling and a few stones. And he taunts back the, the, the giant Goliath. And he, sa- he says that you've defied the armies of the living God, and I am going to, I come to you here today in his name, the name of the Lord God of Israel, and I'm going to slay you today, and you are, your body's going to be eaten by the birds. And that's what happens. Uh, David puts one stone in his, in, in his sling, launches it at Goliath, hits him right in the forehead, and down he falls. Uh, it's a story we know. It's a story we know. Uh, but when we start to press in beyond, like start asking interpretive questions about this story beyond just the fact that it's a story, we start to get a little lost, I think. Like, what do we make of this story? Was that just, was that just like a random act of bravery? Was, Dave, was it just, just an admirable example of the faith? Uh, was... Or is that, was the talk just like a pep talk for us in facing the hard things in our lives? Or is David versus Goliath, is it like rooting for the underdog? Is it like the biblical proof text for always rooting for Philadelphia sports teams? Like, what, what do we, how do we apply this? What, what's the big, why did Goliath have to be a giant? Why couldn't he just be a really strong dude? Um, David, become, he's part of the, the, what's in, part of the kingship of David. Um, is that he kills the giant. And he kills other giants, too, if you read about the story of David. He, he dispossessed, he, he takes the, these, these clans who had giants in them, like the Jebusites. He takes Jerusalem. He takes, he takes away the land from the giants. And that's part of his kingship. And if you look closer at the old, in the Old Testament, you begin to see that there are these threads 
of giants beyond just this one story about one guy at one battle, Goliath. You begin to see uh, that the, when the people of Israel, when they were wandering through the wilderness, they eventually are coming to the promised land, and they send some folks into the promised land to see what's, what, what's there. And most of the spies come back and are afraid because the, the people there are giants. And they make the, we feel like, they're like, we feel like grasshoppers next to them. They're so big. You keep going farther back. Moses fought against giants. Uh, Moses, he, he defeated, he, in Deuteronomy, he talks about how he defeated Og, the king of Bashan. The book of Deuteronomy describes Og as having a, an iron bed that was 10 feet long. And the, the, the victory over Og is celebrated multiple times throughout the Bible. In the passage we just read, we get the origin of giants. Uh, Nephilim, we'll go into all the, the, the specifics with the original languages, but the best translation for it is giants. We get the origin of giants. Um, and this, this passage is what's like one of those hotly debated passages in Genesis and in the entire Bible. Um, and we're going, to talk about, we're going to talk about giants today. Um, and before we get into talking about giants, it's worth like resituating ourselves. We're back in Genesis. We've been in uh, the Gospels for a while now. We were in Genesis earlier this year. We worked our way all the way from, from the beginning, chapters 1 through chapter 5. Um, I'm going to give you a quick recap of where we've been, and I'm going to talk about why we're getting back in Genesis now. Quick recap of where we've been. Uh, it's been bad. It's been really bad. Uh, it's been getting worse and worse. Uh, Adam and Eve, uh, they, they took from the, the fruit of the tree they weren't supposed to take from, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and they were, so therefore, they, there were consequences administered to them. They were cast out um, of Eden. And then their son Cain, it, it keeps getting worse and worse. Their son Cain murdered his brother. He's cast even farther east of Eden. He founds the first city. His descendants get worse and worse. Uh, his, his, uh, one of his descendants named Lamech is a man who who boasts of murdering an, in an innocent boy. He takes multiple wives. He terrorizes his wives. Things just keep getting worse and worse. And in the passage we just read, the, like, the, the worse and worse just is, is like front and center. That's what this passage is about. It's about the chaos in the world because of spiritual darkness, these forces of spiritual evil. And it's about the sin that's in the world because of the, the depth of evil in our own hearts. That's what's what we've, where we've been going in Genesis, and that's how it intersects with this passage now. Why are we getting back into Genesis now, in mid-November? Uh, we're, we're coming up on the church. We're, we're doing like an early bird, starting early uh, on our, our sermon series for the, the, the season of the year of Advent. Advent is the time of the year where we look forward to Christmas, which is the, the, the season, where the, the, the feast, really, where we celebrate Christ coming into the world. So this is a time where we, we, there are ways we've, we've put ourselves back um, into the feet of the people of Israel as they waited for the coming Messiah, the coming light of the world. Uh, and there are ways in this, time, this season where we begin to look forward to uh, the second coming of Christ. We're not officially in that season now, uh, but over this season, we had to start a bit early to make sure we could cover all of the, the, the chapters in Genesis about the flood. Um, why the flood over Advent? It's because the flood comes because the world is shrouded and covered in darkness, and the world needs to be cleansed. And... Christ's coming has lots and lots of parallels with the flood. Um, the darkness I just, made, I just mentioned, we're going to talk more about the darkness of our world today. Um, and also eagerly awaiting the coming light of the world. Uh, that's, what was going, that's what's happening in this passage. It's like light needs to come to this, this world. There's this great verse at the end. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thank, thank God. There's some ray of sunshine here at the end of this passage. Um, it's a world that longs for new creation, is aching and groaning to be made new, um, even though that's going to be incredibly, incredibly costly. 
So it is in our world. So it is with us. So it was for the people who are waiting for Christ to come. So we're going to be studying the flood. Um, it's light coming into the world. Um, what happens when you, sh- you take a flashlight into like an abandoned row home in, in the city and you shine a flashlight? You see a lot of dark, nasty stuff, right? Bugs and all kinds of dust and overgrown whatever. What does the light coming of the light also mean? It also means that there's someone in the house and there's like new hope for like maybe this house won't be abandoned anymore. And that's going to be some of the themes as we look at this passage and as we're studying the flood. The goodness of the light. We're going to look to the goodness of the light. But in order to do that, we also have to honestly reckon with just how dark the darkness is. So my two points I'm going to, um, for today, I'm going to talk about chaos. I'm going to probably spend a bit more time on chaos and these, these spiritual creatures, the sons of God and the Nephilim. And then I'm going to talk about sin and the depth of evil in our own human hearts, which is in this passage too. So, uh, we, we read, uh, in, in, uh, read verses 1 through 4 with me again. Uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Who are the sons of God? Uh, what, that, that's a loaded expression. You know, we're used to confessing that Jesus is the capital S, Son of God, who are these? Who are these guys? You know, this is in the first pages of the Bible. Jesus is not going to be mentioned explicitly for many. He's he's not being mentioned. This is obviously not him, right? Uh, The sons of God refers to uh, this this thing thing about called the the divine council, right? So if you were to look to a place uh, like Psalm eighty-two, it says things like it says this: God has taken place in the divine council. In the midst of the lowercase g, gods, he holds judgment. Later on in that psalm, God addresses that council, and he calls the, the, the beings in that council sons of the Most High. Here, what's crystal clear from the Old Testament? There is only one God. That's like, if you're going to say, what's the clearest thing from the, New, the Old Testament? It's that. There's one God who is all-powerful and above all things, who created the world and sustains the world. But also... That one God has a divine council of, of, of angelic beings whom he has privileged with powers to rule over the nations and rule over the world. Um, those are the sons of God. And this, and this, so the, this narrative that we just read right here um, about the sons of God coming down to be with the daughters of man, this is a fall narrative. So usually when we think of the fall, uh, we think of capital F, the, the fall of man, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned. Uh, this actually is a fall narrative too. And this is, who's falling here? It's some of those angelic beings. It's some of that divine counsel. How, how, do, how can I say that? The language here is actually almost the exact same as the language of um, the man and the woman taking from the fruit of the tree. The, the language here of, they saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took. Does that sound familiar? That's the same language as taking the fruit from the tree. This is, a, this is a fall, but the creatures that are falling are not humans, but these, these, this, this divine counsel. Um, this is chaos. Um, this, is things, this is beings that are mixing that should not be mixed. Um, this is beings coming down um, to wreak destruction and chaos in the world. Um, and the, the fruit of them doing this are the Nephilim, uh, which is... One of the most hotly debated things in the Bible. What does this mean? There's, there's tons of speculation and discussion in church history about this. Who are the Nephilim? 
Uh, they are, the, best, the best translation for it is that they are giants. Giants like we talk about with Goliath. Uh, they're great warriors. They're ancient kings who are the offspring of like these ritualistic unions between the divine council and the daughters of men. That's what, it's, that's what this, this text is saying. Um, and we're, we hear this and we're like, what? <laughs> what? It's worth saying that original listeners would have, the original listeners to this text would have heard this, and they would not have been as surprised as us. Uh, if, you, if you go look at like ancient texts from around the world, across cultures, east to west, like their understandings of there being an ancient flood, their also understandings of there being great semi-godlike kings that lived before that flood. It's, 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 a, it's true across human cultures. If you were to go look at, like, uh, if you ever heard of the Babylonian text, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh? You ever heard of Gilgamesh? Um, Gilgamesh, he, he, it, according to, like, his origin story, he, he's two-thirds divine and one-third human. He comes from this, he, he claims to be from this, this mixed heritage of, of a, a divine king, a god who is presiding, and, and a woman in, in a temple. That's how you get thirds, which is weird. Like, if you, if, I, if, me, if you carrying this, if you aren't, like, sitting there being, like, getting the heebie-jeebies a little bit, then you're really, then I don't think you're paying attention. Like, it's, and that, like, it's grotesque, it's wrong, even if we can't fully articulate why. Like, so many of the, of, like, the, the language, the, the commands of the Old Testament are about things having their own categories and spaces. Like, this is clearly a defiance of that. This is why, in the, if, like, the descendants from all this are the, the unclean spirits of the New Testament. Why are they called unclean spirits? Why are they called uh, demonic spirits or evil spirits? They are called unclean spirits because there's a mixing that's happened here that was not sanctioned um, according to the way that creation was supposed to be. Um, so the Nephilim, these giants, I, the, the text tells us, so they were on earth in those days, verse 4, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. Uh, these are the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Um, they were around, so they're going to be destroyed by the flood, but the text tells us they're around afterwards too, which is to say that like this fall was not just like it happened once and done, but it was something that was ongoing and happened again after the flood, and character, which is why we see giants, as I already mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, why we see these, these giants after um, after the flood and going on through the, the Old Testament. Um, this is the chaos. This is the picture of the world before the flood and hinting towards after the flood too. Angelic beings who were supposed to serve God and rule over the nations in his name, they instead, they defy God and they change the nations into monsters. Um, it's worth saying that the language here, there's a mutuality to this. Like the... The, the, the way that the, the sons of God come in and are united with, with men, with the daughters of men, like there's a mutuality. It's like, oh, they were given over in marriage, as if to say that human cultures, these ancient human cultures, act, they actually received, they actually wanted this. They actually wanted the things that the, these, this union could provide. Like, why do you think God cuts the years of man short to 120 years? It's because probably uniting with these beings led to long life and power. Um, and we live in a time of chaos too. And this, this, I know this like feels like so ancient and funky and weird and as far away from us as we can. It just seems like as far away from us as from us as we can imagine. Um, 
We live in a time of chaos too. And I think that, that, that this, this isn't as outlandish as it may feel or sound. Consider some things. Consider on a big scale. On a big scale, we forget uh, that we are coming out of the bloodiest century in human history. The 20th century, the bloodiest century in human history. Um, me, personally, I struggle to know how to explain the atrocities of the 20th century without having an understanding of evil like we get in this passage of like. There is something going on. There is a kind of transcendental, all above us, way more powerful beyond us, evil that's in the world. Uh, that, like, how else can I explain? How else can I explain one nation corralling people into camps and systematically murdering them? How else can I explain? Millions upon millions of people. How else can I? I, I struggle to know how to explain it. Um, but even at a micro level, even at a micro level, um, like here's here's a here's a, a, a wild fact for you that that like makes my bones quiver, makes me freak out. Um, people are better at filling and administering prescription meds for their pets than they are for themselves. How much do we have to hate ourselves? Like it's, it's actually in the pet's interest for us to administer to like take our prescription medications, right? Like we take care of the pet. Um, what are the things that work in the world that lead us to look at the horrors of a whole century, like the 20th century, but also like so neglect and destroy ourselves that such a thing could even be said? Um, there are powers uh, lurking in our world um, that want. And remember, these people they benefited from this. Um, there are powers lurking in our world um, that want nothing more than for you to be powerful, popular, and live a long, easy life. And to turn away from Christ and to hate your neighbor. Um, we don't pray, in the Lord's Prayer, we don't pray deliver us from evil just because it's a cool-sounding thing to say. Um, let's not be fooled. Let's not be fooled. Uh, where are you fooled? Where are we fooling ourselves? Where have we forgotten just how weak and in need we are before such powers? How in need we are of the, of, of, of the God who I'm going to talk about and his light and his deliverance. Um, the Apostle Paul describes it as a war in Ephesians 6. Do we pray, if we pray, um, do we pray like we're in the middle of a war where there are powerful beings who can unleash chaos and hell in the world? Um, it's like my, I, I think of my grandfather. My grandfather fought in World War II in the Philippines in the foxholes. It's like, what if I were to like walk up to my, my grandfather fighting in the Philippines in 1945 and I was like, I was like, yeah, your enemy's not that big of a deal. You obeying the orders of the, the, the top commander, not that important. You don't need to be watchful and attentive of what's going on inside and outside your foxhole. You don't need to be aware of the state of the guy in the foxhole next to you. It's not that big of a deal. We're in a war. Uh, so this is a dark world, Genesis 6, this is a dark world. Connects with our world too. It's a dark world that's consumed by chaos, and that's just the evil things going on outside of us. Um, second point. So I talk about chaos. The second point is about sin. 
um, the darkness within our own hearts. Read verse 5 with me again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The text really says it, just, it, says it right? Like it emphasizes in, in multiple ways that this is how deep and thoroughly true it is that our hearts are not to be trusted. Uh, that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. It's like it just like it's beating it in, into us that like this world was the, the heart the, the hearts of these people were just so wicked. It's a classical text for understanding the depth of sin uh, before the flood, and in defa- it's also like a classic text in knowing how what our default condition is um, as 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 sinners. It's, it's, what, is, what is this text not saying about sin and about ourselves and about our hearts? What's it not saying? This text is not saying that we all start off innocent and pure and are slowly corrupted by society and by our friends. This text is not saying that we are moved to do terrible things primarily uh, because of things that have been done to us. Uh, people are not wicked just because of trauma. Uh, those, that certainly is a contributing factor for how our world has, has become what it is. This text is not saying uh, that we sin because our circumstances are hard and we aren't getting what we deserve or need. That is not what it's saying. It is not saying that we are wicked because we live in unjust systems, though these people certainly are, right? And that's certainly part of the picture. Even though all those things are absolutely part of the picture, this text is primarily saying that our hearts, the center of the human person, the place from which our mind, our will, our loves, our action come, the human heart, is corrupted. This is what it's saying. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. We are far worse off than we think. We are far worse off than we think. Um, I ask you again, where have you been fooled? Where have we allowed ourselves to be fooled? Where have we underestimated the, the villain without and the villain within? If this, this teaching, it's possible the, the first teaching may have just sounded silly to you. The second teaching about um, not just about wicked powers in the world, but the wickedness of our own heart, this one may be even more weird and more offensive to you. Um, if it sounds unnecessarily harsh to you, I'd invite you with this, to do this th- thought experiment with me. Okay? Is there an alternative message that I could preach from this pulpit that would actually lead to better things? Consider this, this thought experiment. We're going to be spending time with our families for Thanksgiving here soon. Um, or with our fam- uh, many of us will be spending, go spend, going and spending time with our families of origin. And these are people who, whom we love um, and who have loved us so much over the years. Uh, but also, like with that family of origin, we know that there, there are hurts, there are wounds, there are words that have been said that have cut deeper than people realize. I want you to imagine that the fam- your family of origin was here in this room today. Imagine it's like no one else is here, and I'm here talking to them, and they're all sitting right here in the front row, your family of origin. They're all sitting right here. What if I told them this? Hey, hey, family, hey, family, hey, guys. Um, you all are basically good people. There's nothing really wrong with you. Just keep doing your best. Considering the hurt and wounds from your 
family of origin. Do you think that would be the most helpful thing to be said to them? Probably not. Or would it be better if I said something to them that made them think or feel, hey, yeah, I guess there, you know, there are ways that I'm actually naturally inclined to hurt others. Uh, and I, there are probably things I've done that have been hurtful that I don't realize. And I should have a little, a good dose of suspicion about my heart and the ways I relate to my loved ones. And it goes deep. And I'd really, I'd best reckon with that. Which one would actually lead to better thanksgivings? Which one of those two messages? And whatever would be better for your family of origin sitting right here, like, it would also be best for you to hear too, because you're not any better than your family of origin. Um, that's what this text says too. Uh, there's a leveling to this about all human hearts. Um, the world of Genesis 6, it's under the chaos of these giants, and each human heart is set towards evil. And like, guys, I just can't, I can't, I don't want to delay in like cutting to the punchline here, uh, which is that like, Christ is the light. Christ is the light. Remember the, the flashlight in the abandoned house again. Like, Jesus is the descendant of David, the giant slayer. Uh, Jesus confronts the chaos of the spiritual powers of evil. He's the coming con conqueror. Uh, David, like, David's a giant slayer. So is Jesus. It's no coincidence that the, some of the first people who sing in response to Jesus coming into the world, you know, coming, moving into Advent, uh, some of the first songs, like Zechariah, his uncle, and Mary, uh, the mother of our Lord, they, sing, they say things like this. They say, he, Jesus, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, that we should be saved from our enemies. Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings this. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Who do you suppose Jesus is bringing down from their thrones? It's these spiritual powers of evil. The sons of God, lowercase s, sons of God, they came in power to bring destruction on the earth. Jesus comes in weakness to uplift the destroyed on the earth. And Jesus also cleanses us from our own sin. Like all the, the wickedness, you know, the wickedness without, Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus conquers and confronts. The, the wickedness within, of our own hearts, Jesus cleanses. He cleanses. Our baptisms is an image. It's more than an image. Our baptism, but at least it's an image of our salvation, that through union with Christ by faith, we are cleansed. Just as dirt is washed away from the skin, we are washed our hearts are washed. And though sin is still indwelling, sin's not gone, it no longer has dominion over us, like verse 5 here. Genesis 6, 5 is no longer, no longer it, it no longer is the, the, the defining dominion statement about our hearts for those of us who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Um, and we begin to see God responding to this darkness in the passage that we read right, right here. Um, we see that he, he, he responds, and th his response is going to be the flood. It's going to be the flood. And, I, and John's going to be getting into that more in the weeks ahead. Uh, God has regret. Um, if, you have, yeah, if, if you have questions about that, what you talk about, it, it's very odd that God would express regret. Like, it doesn't make sense with the nature of God in a lot of ways. Um, we could talk about it if you have questions about that. Just know this. God is grieved. 
That's what the text says. He's grieved. He cares. He sees and he cares. And he's going to do something about it. He will not let the darkness triumph. The darkness within and the darkness without. And, he's going, and that's what the, what the flood is going to be. It's going to be an uncreation that prepares the way for a new creation. He confronts and he cleanses. Uh, he, and this is this, this like uncreation that comes before a new creation. Sometimes, think about that, that house, the abandoned house, the row home. It's like, in order for that house to be made new, like uh, the, you know, the, you're going to have to get rid of the bugs. You're going to have to clean out all the, the dust and the moss and all the things. There's going to have to be uncreation, like the flood, that happens before new creation, before that home becomes a place where one can reside again. The world must be destroyed before it can be made new. This is what we're going to learn about. And that's not just the case for the world in Genesis 6. It's also just the case for our lives. And many of us know this. Um, like, this is why for us becoming more like Christ is always through repentance. It's always through repentance. It's through us turning away from the darkness and turning towards Christ instead. Um, and I, and I, there's, there's a lot more to talk about this text. There's a lot of questions you may have. I would love to talk to you. Um, but i got to land the plane on this thing. And just thinking about like the necessity of, you know, Jesus talks about how salvation is like a new birth. Like something has to die. Someone has to die. And Jesus dies. Uh, so that we can be made new. Like, so, and, and repentance is turning away from the old self. Um, landing the plane here, guys. It's like, where do you need to do that today? Where do you need to do it today? What are you neglecting? Where are the ways, like, me talking about all this darkness? Where are the places where you've been fooled, where you have been denying the darkness within and the darkness without? Um, at, at, at men's retreat this, this uh, uh, past weekend, uh, Jim Bergwald gave us a great image for just of, of that's, I think it's like a, it's a precursor to repentance. It's part of repentance. And he gave this image of just like how we carry things in our pockets and we just have to lay things on the table before God. Um, what are the big jagged things in your pockets that are, cutting your, that are cutting you up, cutting those around you that you just need to like take out of your pockets? The things that are causing the kind of darkness in the world? What are the things that need to be, go through uncreation? What, what would it look like this morning, this week, to take those things out? Right now, like tonight, today before God, to take those things out and lay them on the table before him and asking for a new, new creation and new life to come. I'd invite you to that today. And putting those, those things in front of God, uh, It'll feel like death. Uh, but here's my, my, my final encouragement. I'll close here. Repentance isn't punishment. Repentance is a gift. Because ultimately we're conformed to the image of the one through whom life comes. The one source of good and just, just justice in the world. Our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.